0: I'm Holly Wayment, and this is Pediatrics Now. Today, we're talking about alternative tobacco products, the second front in the war on tobacco. Today, here in the podcast studio, joining me is Dr. Michael Weitzman. He's a research professor at New York University School of Medicine, where he was chair of pediatrics. He was also a professor of environmental health, pediatrics, psychiatry, and global public health. He's been a doctor for half a century, and he's the American Pediatrics John Howland Award recipient, the single most prestigious honor in American Pediatrics. Dr. Weitzman, it's such an honor to be here to, with you today, here in the podcast studio.
1: It's an honor and a privilege to be here with you and your colleagues today.
0: So, you have um, spent and continue to spend much of your time and your career in helping the lives of children, helping to develop public policy and kind of marry that, what's happening in the clinical setting to helping to prevent the problem from happening in the first place or stop it if it's already happening?
1: Right, I have devoted my career, I've been fortunate enough to have a career as a general pediatrician who started off as a practitioner who's been able to wed clinical medicine to research and child advocacy and the development of public policy. Uh, That's been wonderfully uh, rewarding for me.
0: You've been a consultant to countless government agencies.
1: That's correct.
0: And testified against the tobacco industry.
1: Yes, I've... uh, served on the Center for Disease Control Childhood-led Poisoning Prevention uh, um, Committee, and uh, I've been a consultant to the EPA in a variety of capacities, uh, and worked for the Maternal and Child Health Bureau, and in 2005, uh, worked with the Department of Justice Uh, in a a federal racketeering case, against the CEOs of the tobacco industry, um, representing uh, the nation's pediatricians, since uh, it was being recognized at that point that tobacco, which had been conceptualized as a problem of adults, really was a pediatric problem. It was a child health problem. And so it's been extremely gratifying to me to work with colleagues from pediatrics and from countless other non-medical fields who have the same passion as pediatricians do to protect children and to uh, uh, help them in any way uh, that they can.
0: How bad, Dr. Weitzman, is the tobacco problem? What are we looking at? We all know it's bad, but how bad is it?
1: So tobacco, Last century and this century will kill more people prematurely than malaria, HIV, and TB combined. It's estimated that six mm. billion people, six billion people, will die of tobacco-related diseases this century, and that's after the successes of the 20th century, uh, and. All tobacco diseases are man-made. They largely begin at the beginning of the 20th century. It's a uh, wonderful and painful story of the history of tobacco in the 20th century in the United States. And what more and more people come to realize is that the vast majority of smokers worldwide begin early in adolescence.
0: So it it's a pediatric problem, and for many years, a lot of people didn't really think it was, that it was more of an adult problem.
1: That's correct. Uh, because, as is true of many diseases, by the way, the diseases manifest themselves later in life. It uh, takes a while for them to begin to uh, lead to ill health that's visible, uh, but it really begins during childhood or even prenatally for a fair number of chronic illnesses of adulthood.
0: So when I was working as a news reporter, and producer in Houston, we did an investigative piece that lasted about six weeks, and we gave, um, we it was about, I think it was 10 girls in high school, and the project was... Um, trying to get them to quit smoking, and they all signed a pledge at the beginning that at the end of six weeks, they were going to quit smoking, and we gave presentations each week. One of them was we had a woman who was dying of lung cancer come in and speak. The girls were in tears, pledged to quit smoking, um, their urine was tested, and by the next week, they had all started smoking again. Another presentation was someone from the opera in Houston came in, a makeup artist, and did their makeup, if they lived to a certain age, what they would look like um, by age 40 if they kept smoking. Girls are in tears, pledge to stop. The next week, every one of them was still smoking. And, you know, we, did, we kept doing our presentations, and the same thing happened each, each time. By the end of the six weeks, every one of them, each one of them was still smoking.
1: Wow. So that is a poignant and on the point presentation. We could spend the rest of our time together simply dissecting what you just said because it captures so many aspects of tobacco. So most people don't recognize that it's the single strongest addiction. It is more difficult to stop uh, in a fair number of studies than heroin or cocaine. Early exposure, in utero exposure, if your mom smokes or lives in a home where somebody smokes, it primes your brain so that exposure to all sorts of illicit drugs later in life, it takes less exposure for you to become addicted. If you're genetically predisposed or exposed in utero or in early childhood to to nicotine, For some people, it only takes two cigarettes to become addicted f- for life. Really? So picture a high school kid or uh, somebody in college, and they take a break, and uh, one of their friends offers a drink, and uh, then somebody else pulls out a pack of cigarettes, and for some kids, two cigarettes. That's Saturday evening, two cigarettes, and they're hooked for life. And uh, wow. Mark Twain, pr- pr- probably the greatest American short story writer, some would say novelist as well, had a joke. He said that the single, sing- single easiest thing that he ever did as an adult was to stop smoking. He did it every day of his uh, adult lifehood. So mm-hmm. it is a terrible addiction. It's very hard to stop. It's important to recognize that there are effective means to help people stop. Uh, Most of those means have not been tried with young people. Um, We don't have research data about what works with young people, but if we extrapolate from what we know with adults, we know that counseling works, we know that nicotine replacement therapy works, We know that addiction is a terrible problem. And it's a relapsing problem. So every one of those young women that you're speaking about in Houston really wanted to quit. They probably succeeded for a certain number of hours and then fell off the wagon again. So it's not that you're a failure. It takes a lot of people repeated times before they succeed. This is a terrible man-made problem and it's made by a very, very deceitful industry that targets youth, recognizing that um, much of tobacco, most of tobacco use starts early in adolescence. There used to be something called Joe Camel, uh, used to be on TV. I remember. It was a cartoon character that looked like a camel cigarette and a camel.
0: That was outlawed.
1: 1996 it was outlawed. I think 1997 was the last time that the advertisement was used. It was somebody who trained with me, who did the studies to show that children as old as six and seven could not distinguish Joe Camel from... uh, Saturday morning cartoon characters. So you need research that's wedded to practice and policy. You need an evidence base to help the public. And so what we often think of as separate endeavors, that somebody is a clinician, somebody else is a researcher, somebody else makes policy, at the very best, those are all melded together. And there are countless non-tobacco stories about the uh, contributions of clinicians to discoveries that have changed the nature of childhood and the the nature of uh, quality of life across the lifespan. So it often begins at the bedside or in the examining room.
0: And as pediatricians, Mm -hmm. it has to be particularly tough, I would imagine, where you're spending so much time and our listeners are spending so much time doing everything they can to help children, and then this is something they're doing to themselves that is setting them up for disaster.
1: Right. Fortunately, there are lots of tools that pediatricians now have. The Academy of Pediatrics has a whole center that's devoted to children and tobacco uh, that produces great materials for pediatricians, uh, and materials for pediatricians' offices, materials to give to parents and to young people. Uh, we could put p-
0: that in our chat. for In the text of this podcast, I'll put a link to that.
1: Oh, that would be great. It's You go to Google, and it's one link, and it takes you to all the resources that are available, that are produced by pediatricians in collaboration with other people, providing tools for pediatricians. So, yes, that would be a very, very uh, useful thing for you to do.
0: And the War on Tobacco, it's a lot of these alternative tobacco products, correct?
1: Well, the War on Tobacco has been going on for almost a century now. Um, And that's a battle against the tobacco industry. And uh, there are two things that the Centers for Disease Control list as the 20th century's worst epidemics, and the greatest public health success stories in the United States. There are two diseases that fit both of those characteristics. One is tobacco, and the other is childhood lead poisoning. So, an almost century-long battle led to profound decreases in smoking amongst the American population. And what's replaced it is smoking of cigarettes by the use of e-cigarettes and water pipes or hookahs. Um, and there are a number of other things, cigarillos, BDs, but I think that they're a distraction given our limited amount of time when so many of our young people are using e-cigarettes and water pipes.
0: Does it make it easier to start smoking with an e-cigarette? Like, as we know, it's happening in our schools?
1: So there are a number, a finite number of uh, very large public health questions related to e-cigarettes. So um, one is, are they helpful in helping people stop smoking? That's number one. The other thing is what are the negative effects of
0: them what are the answers to those?
1: <laughs> there are two others. The okay. third is what's driving people to do this, and then the fourth most worrisome one is, is it something that youth start with that then promotes their going on to using cigarettes? The first as uh, is whether or not they work to help people quit it doesn't th-
0: seem like it. <laughs>
1: Well, you should be doing this podcast. <laughs> you seem to know a great deal about this. Uh, so that's the way that um, the tobacco industry is, uh, uh, has rebranded itself as all the e-cigarettes. I'm not sure it's all, but the vast majority of e-cigarettes. It's hard to say all about e-cigarettes uh, in general since there are 15,000 different flavors. And there are 6 million That's not a linguistic slip. There are 6 million uh, applications before the FDA right now for e-cigarette products. Wow. But the way that they've branded themselves is as um, an industry that's going to help people stop smoking. And the evidence to date is that it's not especially effective at all as a harm reduction agent which is a public health term. Uh, most people who are cigarette smokers who start using e-cigarettes do cut back to a certain extent on how many cigarettes they smoke, but they become what's called dual users. And for all sorts of problems, we find that dual users suffer worse than people who single smoke only cigarettes or only vape. So that's the first question. Why is that? Why is that? Because. Uh, there are uh, dangerous components to the e-cigarettes, and uh, we only know about uh, ill effects of certain of the e-cigarette constituents mm. and the 7,000 different components in when you inhale um, cigarette smoke. what That flavoring is an attempt to seduce uh, young people to do, do this. There are numerous ways in which they effectively seduce young people to uh, use this. Um, But you also, with an e-cigarette, can greatly increase the dose of nicotine, which enhances the addictive properties. And nicotine itself has certain adverse consequences to it. There's a long-standing literature, and uh, some of my research has looked at this, on the relationship between depression and uh, cigarette smoking.
0: What is that relationship?
1: There's no question that both people who smoke and use e-cigarettes have much higher rates of depression. Uh, And whether or not uh, cigarette smoking leads to depression or depressed individuals are more likely to start smoking because of the psychoactive properties of nicotine, Uh, is a matter of debate, and it probably goes in both directions. So it doesn't really work to help people stop smoking. Um, The literature on negative consequences of using e-cigarettes is still emerging. E-cigarettes were only introduced in 2006. When you want to talk about studying long-term effects, The epidemic doesn't really start until around 210, 215. So you're talking about something that's 10 to 15 years old. And again, as I say, there are so many different types of e-cigarettes and e-cigarette products. Why would you have so many e-cigarettes and e-cigarette products, may I ask you? Making a lot of money. Well, it's not just that, but then it's impossible to really vet them and study them. So it's hard for me to publish a paper on the negative consequences of e-cigarettes when there are so many different types of e-cigarettes, each containing different components to the cigarette and then the liquid that's being inhaled differs one from the others. And the other thing is that now that we have regulations and that you need federal approval, if you submit six million applications And each of those applications are hundreds of thousands of pages. What does that do? Do we have the resources to be able to study each of those applications the way that they deserve to be studied? This is a very, very devious, wealthy industry that uses deception at every level. On
0: social media, in fact. So so social media, well,
1: there are um, countless ways in which social social media contributes to this. So you talked about actresses uh, doing themselves up in the way that uh, uh, you have long-term effects on skin and the way that you're going to look. So we know that the way that an adolescent looks is extremely important to them. Mm -hmm. A crooked tooth. A pimple could be a cause for despair. Mm -hmm. Uh, The pediatricians who are listening, some of them are probably laughing because they've confronted that. Um, (laughs) So um, you have influencers. You have advertisements where the e-cigarettes are embedded in the advertisement. You don't necessarily focus on the e-cigarette. Your attention is on how beautiful the boy and girl are, uh, how well-dressed they are, what a great time they're having, how romantically attractive they are. Uh, Sex is intimately tied as part of the sales pitch. This was well-developed when the tobacco industry was having advertisements for cigarettes on television. Um... So uh, it's the advertising term, by the way, I love this, is subliminal seduction. So if, in fact, I show two people smoking and embracing and it's a flash on an advertisement for a car so that you barely see the smoking and the embrace, that that is much more effective in... um, lighting up those parts of the brain that lead to motivation for uptake, risk-taking, for trying something. The pleasure pathways, the, set, the neural pathways for tobacco are the same as those for uh, the, the uh, pleasure that you get for a fat-laden meal or from sexual activity. It's wow. the same pathways. So. I do a fair amount of research on uh, negative consequences, Um, but there is a a research literature that I haven't contributed to, but that every pediatrician should know, um, which shows that you're three and a half times as likely if you're an adolescent who uses e-cigarettes to become a regular cigarette smoker. So the real public health danger is that e-cigarettes will renormalize for a new generation uh, the use of cigarettes. That's the real scare.
0: It's so scary. Dr. Weitzman, can you take us through a case, let's say, of a 14-year-old girl is in the pediatrician's office, and she's, she started using an e-cigarette, is, is it hard also to even know if the child is doing that? Will they admit it necessarily in the office?
1: So you ask great multiple questions <laughs> that make me wanna stop and break them down, like a, a deposition or a trial <laughs> and answer each of them separately. So let me start with, uh, is it difficult? Lots of kids don't know that they're using e-cigarettes because there's so much nomenclature. So Mm -hmm. lots of kids think that juuling, using a jewel, can you believe a product that was introduced less than 10 years ago has not only a noun attached to it but a verb, Mm -hmm. but there are many, many terms so that kids who vape or juul don't know that they're using an e-cigarette, an electronic cigarette, um, or an electronic nicotine delivery device. So, by the way, it's a pediatrician named David Kessler who made this enormous contribution to the war on tobacco when it occurred to me while he was the head of the Food and Drug Administration that the FDA was responsible for regulating devices that delivered drugs and that cigarettes were nothing more the nicotine delivery systems. Hmm. So words count, and an idea like that led to the ability of the federal government to regulate nicotine delivery systems. So does the kid know that the kid is using it? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Does the kid know that he or she is hooked? All right? So occasional use... Having used it once or twice in the past year is completely different than being a current user and being addicted to it. So does a child or the early adolescent know? Not necessarily. So I would hope that a 14 year old girl has a longitudinal relationship with the pediatrician. Unfortunately, Healthcare care and the financing of it has changed. I'm not familiar with healthcare care or the health care system in Texas, but in lots of places it's becoming more corporation-driven, owned, that pediatricians and other types of doctors are reimbursed on uh, a schedule that doesn't enable them to go into depth.
0: The coding system. You yeah. got
1: it. Um so I guess it's still it, it occurs here in Texas as yes. well.
0: Would you say though within that I mean what would be the you know a few concrete steps that could be taken would have that piece of paper from the American Academy of Pediatrics on tobacco give that to the child and to the parent would that be or 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 send the child to counseling what would be step 1?
1: step one would be hopefully that you have a long-term relationship with the child and that you're seeing a 14-year-old confidentially all right so those of us who have loved and i have loved more than anything in my life being a parent go through a period of uh What you often joke about is temporary insanity amongst our children.
0: The teenage years? Yes.
1: (laughs) Adolescence exists to help teenagers separate. And for those who have loved being parents, it helps us separate from our children. But lots of kids rebel against their parents. Lots of kids are secretive about things from their parents. Yes. But ideally... Uh, a pediatrician has a long-term or an intimate relationship with a child, and the child can trust that person. And so you never really, you don't change behavior by being judgmental. You don't change behavior of an adolescent by telling them what they do. There's something called motivational interviewing, which lots of pediatricians do, either yes, from formal training. We've talked or about
0: that, and y- yes, that's a great a great tool.
1: So helping the adolescent realize it, uh, helping the adolescent recognize the cost of this. So one of the things that most or many adolescents have is a real strong sense of not wanting to be taken advantage of. So independence is a driving thing for adolescents. So somebody who's trying to take away their independence. So I'm not going uh, in the direction of a parent now. I'm going to uh, the point of telling them that the tobacco industry is using them and that it's going to cost them a good deal of money and that ultimately it's going to cost them all sorts of aspects of their health and that they're being deceived and taken fun of. So there are lots of ways of motivating adolescents in different ways. Uh, so giving written material probably works if we extrapolate from the adult literature. Uh, there's decades of research that counseling, and it doesn't have to be very long, but repeated counseling of less than a minute, because pediatricians don't have a lot of time. you know. The uh, Academy of Pediatrics puts out a monthly publication called Pediatrics, and there are countless noble pediatricians who work for, without getting compensated financially for the Academy, putting together policy statements for practicing pediatricians about counseling that they should do in the office. But all of that takes time.
0: Do you, do you think Dr. Weitzman, though, Given what you've said, which it's, it's, this is incredible information and thank you so much, should we be saying in the, the pediatric setting, starting earlier, say age 11, mentioning and don't ever use any tobacco product, just like a quick line? Or what would you recommend there?
1: So you're a remarkable interviewer for a number of reasons. The Academy of Pediatrics puts out a book called Bright Futures, that I was honored enough uh, 15 years ago or so to write a, compli- a complimentary book to it about how do you do Bright Futures. But it lays out for pediatricians at every visit the cornerstone of suggestions of what preventive services to do. Bright Futures suggests that at age 11, you begin to ask about and counsel about. It's called 5As. Um, that's uh, a development of the adult literature, to ask, to assess, to assist, to advise, and then to arrange. So you ask, you assess whether or not the adolescent is doing this, you begin to plant the seed that this is something that you might want to consider not doing, that this is something that has no benefit for you, Although that might not ring true, given social media, the way it's portrayed, uh, and with uh, all sorts of different platforms.
0: And also using kids and people who are on social media. That's what people need to realize, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's now banned, but initially for a number of the e-cigarette companies using the same playbook that was used by Big Tobacco, funding sports events, funding parties, giving out free samples, having uh, movie stars or other well-known people using these things and or making appearances so that the kid feels all excited that they were in the same room as this particular person who was using E-cigarettes? Oh, yeah. The children, we're all influ- influenced by uh, all sorts of advertising efforts.
0: Dr. Weitzman, I know your testimony led to a lot of the policy changes.
1: I would suggest that in the large number of things that we're asked to do, that this is one of the single most important things to address with kids. I think that pediatricians more than any other branch of medicine recognize that they also have an inordinate amount of power outside the office. In many, many communities, the, the people who are most knowledgeable about and most respected about what's good and what's not good for children's physical and mental health. And so there are countless advocacy efforts in helping school boards, city councils, state legislatures. Texas is out front with wonderful policies as relates to electronic cigarettes. And I would imagine that pediatricians have played some role in that. So you want to be allies of the children. You want to be allies of the parents. As relates to advice for parents, it's that pushing too hard it often leads to promoting the very behavior that the things that we love the most in the world then go on to do so shaming or chastising or being uh, adversarial towards your child uh, rather we always want our children to think of us as their best friends and the people that they can trust the most in the world that we have our kids' backs, right? Not that we're enemies of our kids. All of our kids get in trouble. And the message that I think resonates with the pediatric community is you want parents to feel good about themselves as parents and that they want a lifelong relationship with their kids, that their kids know that when they're in trouble, that's the person that they want to turn to. So you don't want to shame your kids. You want to let you know your kids know that you want to help them, that this is something that they realize that there's peer pressure, that there are many things that are influencing them, but we know that this is an addiction. Um, we know that it's costly, uh, it costs money. We know that the people who are turning them on to do this do not have their best interests at mind. And we know that peer influences influence adolescents a lot more than adult influences. So if you can work with schools to have kids put on shows, find uh, anti-tobacco champions amongst adolescents in your communities who are influencers, who are popular kids, who will be out front about this, developing the messaging themselves. So pediatricians often go to speak to PTAs or to speak at assemblies. This is the way to enlist kids as allies. This is not something that we're gonna, parents or pediatricians, be effective in stemming the tide in this new front uh, of an affront on our children.
0: And that's yeah. When I was in high school, I was one of those where I spoke in front of the school about tobacco, anti-tobacco, and I, um, and then I was. I remember I was interviewed. This was a while ago, but interviewed by a news station. And what I said about peer pressure was, when you have your mind already made up, when you're approached by a friend, you don't even think about it because you already know the answer. So don't you you have your answer with you all the time. Is something like that a good? Thing or what would you recommend about peer pressure?
1: I think peer pressure, again, is the you know we all have peer pressure. Yes, but part of the uh, great divide design of the human organism is that peer pressure helps children individuate and separate from their family of origin and enter the real world. So you need to deal with peer pressure uh, and begin to develop peer groups and peer awareness of what's being done to them and the dangers, no kid wants to become an addict for a lifetime. I mean, if you use certain terminology, so addiction is a terrible, terrible, terrible medical health problem. People who are addicted to things are not bad people there's a biological imperative that leads them. So nicotine withdrawal is a difficult thing. There is an interesting thing for pediatricians to think about. So mm. there, you under the age of 21, you can't get nicotine replacement therapy without- You but, can't get it? No, so. but pediatricians can write for those medications uh, off-label. There's nothing illegal unethical about doing that. However, there's no evidence that it works for adolescents, but the absence of evidence is not absence of something not working, that coming from a researcher. There are lots of things that we don't know about yet. We have a, an extensive adult literature showing that nicotine replacement works, because the withdrawal from addic- uh, the addiction of nicotine is profoundly uncomfortable. That's what leads for those young women in Houston to try to stop, and then they go back to smoking again because it makes them edgy, irritable. They have palpitations, hypertension, diarrhea, stomach aches, headaches, wow after just a few cigarettes or e-cigarettes. And again, with an e-cigarette, you can have 50 times the amount of nicotine being delivered to what you're delivering with a cigarette. And I don't know how much time we have, but hookah bars. Or I don't know about hookah bars in Texas. By the way, I'm proud to announce to the pediatricians of Texas that I have family members just a few miles from here. I have a daughter in Austin, and a granddaughter, and a son-in-law, and another granddaughter only several weeks away. So I feel that part of my heart is here in Texas. So I don't know about hookah bars here, but I know about hookah bars in multiple other cities in the United States. I know about them in lots of European cities. I know about them in the Caribbean. And I know that you have to be 21 to go into a hookah bar. In New York City, and we've done these studies, the majority of the patrons are under the age of 21. In New York City, you can't have a hookah bar with nicotine. I've published multiple papers showing the nicotine content in the hookah shisha and in the air, so nicotine is being used in hookah bars in New York City. I don't know about Texas. I'm
0: pretty sure we have them. But
1: in New York City, you can't get you can't rent a hookah without buying a bottle of vodka so that the kids are drinking at the same time that they're ho- using a hookah. Wow. And 1 hour of a hookah, you ready for this? 1 hour with a hookah. 1 hour. 1 hour is the equivalent to 5 packs of cigarettes.
0: Wow. That is stunning. I think probably most people don't know that.
1: Most people don't know that. Most people, we've used Yelp. Talk about social media and the the internet. But we've used Yelp to show that the majority of uh, hookah bars in many cities in the United States are being uh, placed around campuses uh, and around high schools. Uh, So that's not by pure chance.
0: Well, Dr. Michael Weitzman, I feel so lucky to be able to be here talking with you today. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today here in the podcast studio on Pediatrics Now.
1: And thank you and your listeners for what they do on behalf of children.